Well, this morning we're going to be putting a wrap on the, the book of Daniel. So we've been in the book of Daniel for uh, 13 weeks now. And if you've been around for most of it, I hope it's been as beneficial uh, for you as it has been uh, for me, just kind of prepping uh, th- over the course of the last uh, three months or so. Next Sunday, we're actually going to be launching a brand new series called We Believe. We're going to be exploring the Apostles' Creed. I'm super excited about that. That'll carry us. Uh, through the rest of the summer and, and probably even through the month of September. And the reason I'm so excited about this series is uh, New Life is a community church, right? You guys know that. We're a non-denominational church. And so what that means practically is a lot of times we draw from, from folks that come from every conceivable spiritual background, right? We got more Catholics here than we can shake a stick at. Uh, I don't know where the Catholics keep coming from, uh, but we're, we love you guys, and I'm glad that you're here. Welcome if you're a Catholic. And then we got folks like me came out of the Baptist world and Presbyterian world, Methodist world, you name it, right? Atheists, seekers, the whole nine yards uh, just tend to, to show up here, and, and that's awesome. We love the diversity that we share here at New Life. One of the challenges, though, is sometimes people are a little confused, like, man, well, who, if, we're, if we're non-denominational, what do we believe? <laughs> like, do we have... Do we have a belief system? Like, do we stand for anything? Like, what are the uh, closed-fisted issues for us as a community of faith uh, called New Life Church? And so, really, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the most ancient creed that the church has been reciting for almost 2,000 years now. This is the first one, as far as I can tell, that really kind of pops on the scene of history, dates all the way back to the second century. The church has been reciting this creed uh, for literally thousands of years, and it really gives us a great foundation a baseline for what we as believers, uh, orthodox, historical uh, followers of Jesus, uh, believe. And so we're going to be going through that for probably about 10 weeks or so. So super excited about that. A great time. By the way, anytime we have a new series, great time to bring a friend, right? A colleague, a classmate, great time uh, when we're launching a new series. So that's next week. But today I want to talk to you from Daniel 11 and 12, the last two chapters, about a really important subject, and that, that's the subject of hope. The subject of hope. Now, it's been said that uh, man can live for 40 days without food, for three days without water, for eight minutes without oxygen, but not a single second without hope. Hope is incredibly important to our existence as human beings. And so I wonder for you, whether you're online this morning, whether you're in the, in the room with us, I wonder for you, what are you hoping in today? What, what are you hoping in today? Now, well, listen, I'm not, I'm not looking for like a, a churchy answer or what you think I want to hear. I mean, like, honestly, where are you really placing your hope this morning? It reminded me of a, a story as I was uh, kind of prepping for this this past week that I heard recently of a pastor. Some of you have probably heard the story who was uh, giving a kid's lesson uh, one Sunday morning, and he was using a, a squirrel as, as an object lesson, and so he had the kids gathered and uh, he said, hey, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some hints about this particular thing, and when you know what it is, I want you to raise your hand and tell me what it is that I'm talking about. So he starts off, he gives them some clues. He says, okay, this, this thing that I'm thinking of, it, it lives in trees and it eats nuts. There's just silence, right, crickets. The kids didn't say anything. So he, he, he gives them another hint. It's like, okay, it's kind of like brown and gray and it has a long bushy tail. It's just crickets, like they didn't, say, they, didn't, they didn't say anything. He goes, oh my gosh, okay. Uh, it jumps from branch to branch. It's silent, and finally one little boy kind of sheep, sheepishly raised his hand, and he said, well, I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me, right? <laughs> and uh, I think, like, for, for a lot of us, that's how we come into church, right? 
We, we have like our real life kind of things, our thoughts, our persona. We come in here and we kind of put on this plastic thing with the churchy answers like, hey, brother, how are you? Oh, God is great. Had a wonderful week, brother. We, and I, listen, I'm, I'm just saying that's not what we're looking for this morning. And so as you do a little self-examination, I want you to seriously ask yourself that question. What are you really hoping in today? Like, where's your hope lie? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you think about? What's the last thing that you think about when you go to sleep at night? What drives you when things are really hard? Is it, is it your career? Is it, is it your job? Is it, if you're young or you're single, is it finding Mr. Right or Mrs. Right? Is it, maybe if you're middle school, high school, college, is it acceptance from your peers? Is it prestige in the workplace? If you're a middle-aged folk like, like I am now, is it, is it like, man, I just got 20 more years to retirement? Or I got 30 more years. If I could just get through this next 15 years, man, I could go sit on the beach and do what I want to do for the rest of my life. Where is your hope actually lying this morning? Now, here's the thing. Hope is important, and I'm going to put this on the screens for you. Hope is important because what you hope in shapes what you live for. What you hope in absolutely shapes and molds what you live for. And the last two chapters of Daniel point us to the address of real hope. And that's something that I think we all need. Whether you're here and you're 80 years old or you're eight years old, whether you're an atheist, a Christian, a Buddhist, a spiritual speaker, I think we all need hope in our lives. And that's what we're gonna find as we dig into Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Let me, let, let me pray for us before we get started. God, we, we come to you and um, we're, we're heading into some, some difficult, difficult passages. Father, as we look at the last section of Daniel, we ask that your spirit would would be here, would be present uh, with us, God. I pray that you would uh, just illuminate our minds as we examine these ancient words in scripture. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to the truth that you would have for us from your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be here to impress these truths deeply into our hearts and our souls in a way that would make us more like your son, Jesus, for your glory, we ask these things, amen. Amen. So Daniel chapter 11 is where we're going to start. Go ahead and go there. If you have a Bible or if you have a, a Bible app, head there. The, the, the final section of this book, the last two chapters, gives us uh, the longest and the most detailed prophecy found in the book of Daniel. There's a lot to cover, so there, we're not going to read all the verses. There's no way we could do that uh, within the time frame that we have. But I'm going to give you a summary, and then we'll kind of touch down in some key places and unpack uh, big ideas and then we're gonna finish our time by celebrating a communion or the Lord's Supper together. So that's kind of the game plan for this morning. Now, let me, let me just give you a little bit of a roadmap for chapter 11 because it is so uh, long and detailed. The first 35 verses, so verses one through 35, give us a history from the life of Daniel all the way through the terrible reign of a character called Antiochus Epiphanes. This, this guy's a psychopath. We met him in Daniel chapter eight, if you were here a few weeks ago. Uh, Antiochus is, is not the final antichrist, but he served, as we said a few weeks ago, as an antichrist prototype. So he's kind of almost a foreshadowing of that final uh, global figure who opposes Christ. So that's the first 35 verses of chapter 11. In verse 36, there seems to be a, a shift that points us to the final time of the final antichrist, right? So a lot of times, Old Testament uh, prophecies will telescope, right? So you'll have like a near uh, a near interpretation, a near application, then you'll have a far application in the future. That's what we see in Daniel chapter 11. And then the culmination of this vision comes to us promptly in chapter 12 with good news, and I hope some really hope-filled applications uh, for us uh, this morning. 
Now, as I have for the entire series, I'm gonna do my best to stay out of the weeds of this text and just kind of focus in and give you the big ideas of uh, chapters 11 and 12. I would agree with uh, the great reformer, Martin Luther. He's helpful for us here. We'll put this quote on the screens for you. Luther writes this. Daniel concludes the record of, this terrify of his terrifying visions and dreams on a note of joy, namely with the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. It is to this glorious final chapter of world history that all of Daniel's visions and dreams have pointed. Whoever wants to study them profitably dare not focus his attention on the details of the visions and dreams, but will find comfort in the Savior, Jesus Christ, whom they portray, and in the deliverance he brings from sin and its misery. And so I would, again, agree with Luther uh, we're going to point to the, the big points. We're not going to get lost in, in the weeds. So let's start chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, rather. And it says this, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, this appears to be uh, an angel speaking here, perhaps Gabriel, who we talked about last week. Uh, we see that Darius the Mede is still on the throne, so we know that we're in the, the time period and history of the Persian Empire. Verse 2, and now I will show you the truth. Again, this angel, likely Gabriel, speaking to Daniel. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, historically, if you know your history books, this is precisely what happened. There were three more Persian kings that followed Darius. There was a fourth who was greater and richer than Alam, he's probably the only one you've ever heard of. You've heard of him, I'm sure, Xerxes, right? He actually did try to go against the, the Greek empire and, and failed. He was portrayed in a, in a really memorable way in the movie a 300 that came out about a decade ago. So you maybe maybe remember King Xerxes. Now these prophecies all come to pass with incredible, uh, astonishing accuracy. Look at verse three. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is a character we've already seen in previous chapters. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken, divided towards the four winds of heaven. If that sounds familiar, one kingdom breaking into four kingdoms, that, that should be familiar to you. But not to his uh, posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now, historically, again, uh, everybody agrees unanimously, this is Alexander the Great, right? He rose up, he overthrew the Persian Empire, he swept across the entire known world. By the time he was 30, he had conquered the entire known world. Tragically, he died at a very young age, unexpectedly, 33 years old, he dies. All of his descendants were tragically murdered, and so his kingdom, the Greek, vast Greek empire, was divided in four, among four sections to four of his generals. Now, what we'll see next in this chapter really kind of telescopes in on two of those four kingdoms that splintered off of Alexander the Great's uh, uh, empire. So in the south, we have Ptolemy. So he ruled in what is modern-day Egypt. So Ptolemy, south, southern king, modern-day Egypt, in the north, which is modern-day Syria, we had Seleucus, right? So what we're gonna see over and over again in this chapter is there's a lot of language about the king of the north and the king of the south. All you need to know is that the king of the north, king of the south, refers to these two kings, right? Ptolemy in the south, Seleucus in the north, and their heirs. And basically what we see in this chapter is a civil war 
between two kingdoms, and God's people are kind of stuck in the middle of this civil, civil war. There's lots of drama, there's lots of bloodshed, lots of wars, lots of betrayal. It's kind of like watching Days of Our Lives, the soap opera, Old Testament edition. That's chapter 11, right? Now, you can go back and read all of that and all this glorious detail uh, uh, later on in your own time. If you do that, I, I would just uh, uh, encourage you uh, to, to look at a resource that I use as a tool every single week. It's the ESV Study Bible. And uh, it's got so many great footnotes, historical things that really help clarify as you study the Word of God. And in fact, I looked on Amazon this week. It was on sale for $21. And so if you don't have an ESV study Bible, let me encourage you, grab one of those. Uh, that will be massively useful to you, especially as you go through apocalyptic prophecy like the book of Daniel or uh, Revelation. Really good stuff. Now, I just want to read one section of this first portion of chapter 11 to highlight for you how incredibly accurate and trustworthy God's word is. So if you have your Bible open, go to uh, verse six through nine. We're gonna read this, uh, kind of unpack some details, and then we'll move on to the, the, the main points. So verse six says this, after some years, they shall make an alliance. Now remember, who are we talking about here? King of the north, Syria, Seleucus, king of the south, in Egypt, Ptolemy, right? So they make an alliance, these two warring kingdoms. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about an arranged marriage. We'll get into that in just a minute. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So it's not gonna go well. We kind of can see that. Verse seven, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. So one of her relatives apparently is gonna rise in her place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now, in ancient times, you guys know this because you're really smart, oftentimes political marriages were arranged to achieve global peace, right? So you'd have two kingdoms that were just kind of like slaughtering each other and warring, and, and they couldn't ever come to a peace treaty. And so oftentimes they would say, well, how about my son marries your daughter, and then our grandkids will kind of be the, the same family, and that will give us a, a level of peace. So this was very common back in ancient times. This is what happens, right? This was a way to calm down the war between the king of the north and king of the south. Now, just what, like this prophecy predicts, here's the really cool thing. History tells us this is precisely what happened. The king of the, the, king of the south had a daughter named Bernice, all right? Now, Josephus, the, the great Jewish historian, uh, records all this for us in his ancient documents, right? So, so Bernice, she went to marry the king of the north. There's only one little problem with this marriage. The king of the north was already married. He had a wife and he had kids. And so what he did was he divorced his first wife, abandoned his kids so that he could marry Bernice for political clout. What could go wrong, right? But we find out from Josephus that Bernice was poisoned. Uh, she died, was murdered, presumably by the first wife who was jealous. And so then he goes back and remarries the first wife who he divorced to marry his second wife who offed Bernice. Right? I told you this is like a soap opera, right? Old Testament edition. But wait, there's more. Old Bernice, she's got a brother, and he's not happy that his sister got off, right? And so he decides he's going to build an army. He's going to go avenge his sister's death, and that's exactly what he did. He goes in. He destroys this 
other kingdom that, that had his sister murdered. He loots all the Syrian temples. He brings all that gold, all that silver back to Egypt, just like the angel prophesied to Daniel in chapter 11. Point is, guys, all of these prophecies were precisely fulfilled in history right down to the detail. Like, we literally could spend the rest of the day going through chapter 11 and just hitting detail after detail after detail in history and how all of these things were fulfilled in amazing ways. In fact, one commentary writer I read said that in this chapter alone, there are over 130 prophecies that were fulfilled in history. Now, the bottom line, guys, is this. God knows the future. Because God knows the future, God controls the future. Because those two things are true, you can rest. You can rest in life. And I feel like so many of us, even as followers of Jesus, man, we are so wound up, we're so wound up tight, man, because we feel like we've got to control all the pieces of the chessboard of our lives. And listen, my hand is, is raised there. And the book of Daniel teaches us, no, 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 no. Believer, son of God, daughter of God, God knows all. He controls all, and so you can rest in him. You can relax and love him and follow him. He is in control. Now, in verses 21 through 35, which we don't have uh, time to read, scholars almost unanimously agree that this deals with a character that we met in chapter 8 called Antiochus Epiphanes, right? You guys probably remember if you were here a few weeks ago. Wicked dude, bloodthirsty guy, raised himself up to the level of God. In fact, minted coins with his face on the coin with the words underneath his face that says, said, God manifest, right? So a little bit of an arrogant guy. Uh, went into the Jerusalem temple, erected an idol to, to Zeus, this demonic god, sacrificed a pig in the middle of the Jewish temple, defiling the temple. He went on to slaughter, scholars tell us, tens of thousands of Jews. Some, some scholars even estimate over 100,000 Jews, God's people. And, th and though he was not the final Antichrist, he served as a, as a foreshadowing of the final Antichrist to come. Or John, uh, Jesus' best friend, wrote in the, the book First John, that many antichrists will come. There will be many antichrists before the final antichrist. And we talked about a couple weeks ago that even now in our day and age, the spirit of the antichrist is active even in our, our culture, right? It stands behind uh, particular uh, world leaders and governments and cultural movements. And so for me, my, my mind kind of drifts to, to Hitler, right? Not Nazi Germany, human beings, but controlled behind the scenes by demonic powers. And God's people throughout history have suffered greatly under these global characters, but they are not the final Antichrist. He is yet to come, all right? So speaking of the devil, speaking of the final Antichrist, there seems to be a shift, as I mentioned earlier, in verse 36. So up until verse 36, it seems like we're dealing with um, past historical issues, things that have happened in the past. Verse 36, it seems like we're shifting now to the future, right? Things that have yet to come. And uh, we really get the description of this uh, final Antichrist, the one Daniel 7 calls the little horn. Uh, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness in 1 Thessalonians 2. Revelation chapter 13 calls this global character the beast. And that's who we are, I believe, introduced to in verse 36. So read along with me as we look at this future character. It says this, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. That, that's our God, the God of the Bible, the God of history. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. In other words, his reign of power is limited. There's a, there's a clock, a stop clock on his 
on his reign. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. So we don't know, uh, most scholars, if you, if you read the prophecies in Daniel, think he's gonna come out of somewhere in Europe. So we don't know if he comes from like a Catholic background, if that's the God of his fathers, if he comes from an Islamic background, we're really not sure. But in any case, he's going to, he's gonna ditch whoever the God of his fathers and grandfathers is or to the one beloved by women. Now, this is a, a, a very curious, mysterious phrase here. Scholars debate the meaning of it. Some scholars will say uh, this Antichrist figure is going to, to reject the biblical norms of marriage and sexuality, that that will be one of the kind of the key, key markers of this last figure, and that wouldn't be hard for us to imagine, even in our day, right? In our culture, which seems to celebrate everything except God's design for sex and marriage. Other scholars would say, no, 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 this, this phrase here is actually a reference to a messianic title in the book of Haggai, meaning that the Antichrist will reject Jesus Christ as, as the Messiah. And I, I think it'd be easy for us to probably uh, predict or see that, that perhaps this guy will do both, right? He'll reject God's design for sexuality and marriage. He'll also reject Jesus as Messiah. We don't really know exactly what that interpretation is. That's just a couple of guesses from a lot of the biblical scholars that have spent far more time than me studying this. Continue on, it says, he shall not pay attention to any other God. So this is quite a, an arrogant man. For he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortress instead of these. In other words, he's gonna worship the God of war. He's gonna be a, a powerful political man, a, a military leader. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. I take this to mean Satan himself that this world leader will be dominated by, by demonic powers. They will serve as his God. Those who acknowledge him, sh he, he shall load with honor. In other words, there will be great reward for those who bow down to this uh, world leader and follow him. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen with many ships. And he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He's going to be a, a, a mighty military conqueror. He shall come into the glorious land. That's Jerusalem and Israel. Tens of thousands shall fall. This is, this is a, a bloody scene. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He, he, he shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. So the world will just kind of begin to fall in line. He's gonna be a very charismatic, powerful, winsome leader. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Again, the nation of Israel is pictured there. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And so he will dominate the world's landscape for a period of time, but the period of time is cut short uh, by the Lord. Now the final Antichrist, it's clear, is gonna bring a level of suffering and pain and persecution never before experienced in world history, but the suffering will be temporary. Why? Because Jesus is coming back, and when he does, this is what's gonna happen. I love this. This is Second Thessalonians Chapter two, this is the Apostle Paul writing on the screens for you, he says this. And then the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, this final global figure, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. I love that, right? No challenge. Jesus will show up the second time. He will wipe this guy out with the breath of his mouth, not even a challenge for Jesus, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
So the Antichrist, for all of his power, for all of his pompous arrogance, when Jesus shows up, it's game over, right? It's a, it's a grown African male lion against a street kitten, right? It's game over. Now, I want you to look at chapter 12, and then we'll just hit a, a few kind of application points, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12, verse 1, in the midst of these trying end times, right, where this global figure is going to show up, lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of sorrow. Chapter 12, verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael. We met Michael last week. You guys remember Michael? Jude calls him the archangel. He's this Navy SEAL warrior angel, right? So he's going to show up on the scene. The great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. We just talked about that such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. Now, Jesus speaks in detail, I believe, of this time, often called the Great Tribulation. If you grew up in church, you probably heard of that time, right? The Great Tribulation. It's thought to be a seven-year period of time, right? Jesus speaks of it. In fact, I want to show you what Jesus had to say about that time. This is found in Matthew 24. This is Jesus teaching, to his, teaching his disciples. Jesus answered, verse 4, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. So there are going to be people in the last days who come, and whether they specifically say I'm the Messiah or not, the idea is going to be, hey, follow me. I have the answers to life. I have, I have the secrets that will make you happy in life. Follow me. That's the idea. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. That's a good word for us, isn't it? See to it when these things start to happen. If you know me, if you know Christ, don't, don't be alarmed. Such things, he says, must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Not the end, the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, so Jesus, by the way, is reading the book of Daniel just like we are today, 2,000 years ago, which I think is incredible. He says, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those who know and love Jesus, those days will be shortened. Praise God. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
even those who know Jesus. See, I have told you ahead of time. Now, let's go back to Daniel chapter 12, where we left off, halfway through verse one, talking about this, this end time. But at that time, this will be on the screens for you, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Isn't that what Jesus just said? At that time, your people shall be delivered. Who's gonna be delivered? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, what book is this? It's referred to in other places as the Lamb's Book of Life. All those who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Verse two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, those who have died, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So what the angel is telling Daniel is this glorious truth that there will be, after the end of this time, a resurrection of the dead. And all those who are in Christ will be raised to life in Jesus in the new kingdom, the new heaven and the earth. And all those who are not in Christ shall also be raised from the dead, but they will not be with Jesus in the new kingdom, the new heaven and earth. They'll actually be separated from Jesus and his kingdom in a place that the Bible calls hell. Verse three, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In other words, the people of God, even in those final, day, final days, have a mission to shine, to reflect the, the light of Jesus and turn others to hope and life in King Jesus. Verse four, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro. It's this idea of chaos in the final days and knowledge shall increase. Have we ever lived in a time where there's been so much knowledge, so accessible, right, through the, through the internet? This is, this is a sign of the times. Verse five, then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood. So now Daniel is eavesdropping in on this conversation bet between three angels. Imagine that. One on this bank of the stream, one on that bank of the stream, and someone said to the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? So even the angels are like curious about this, and they don't have all the answers. They're like, this is amazing, this is astounding, like when is this gonna happen? When is this gonna come to an end? Verse seven, and I heard the man clothed in linen, likely Gabriel, who is above the waters of the stream, raised his right hand, raised his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that would be for a time, times, and half a time. We looked at this phrase just a few weeks ago. Scholars almost unanimously agree that this is likely a time period of three and a half years. We talked about this two weeks ago. It seems like from the prophecies in the book of Daniel that the Antichrist is going to show up on the scene. He's gonna broker a peace deal in the Middle East, likely with the nation of Israel. And things are gonna be awesome for roughly three and a half years. And everybody's gonna be singing this dude's praises. Like, man, this guy's an awesome leader and look how he's brought world peace in and look how charismatic of a speaker he is and he's so inclusive and nice and awesome and things are gonna look awesome for about three and a half years and then all hell is gonna break loose. And then there's gonna be terror and bloodshed and persecution and death. I'm gonna pick up right where he left off and then when that, the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. All these things would be finished. Verse eight, I heard, but I did not understand. Uh, we're with you, Daniel. <laughs> this is hard to understand, right? Daniel's talking to three angels and he's still like, man, I don't get all this. This sounds very, very confusing to me and, and, and pretty horrific, pretty scary. 
Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Verse 9, he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. That's what the wicked do. Sinners sin, right? Haters hate. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise, those who are in Christ, shall understand these things. This is why we should seek to understand these things. Verse 11, and from the time that is the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, that again, that's likely an event that takes place in a temple in Jerusalem about three and a half years after the Antichrist, the final Antichrist comes to power, right? Away the abomination that makes desolate is there. There shall be 1,290 days. You do the math on that, that is roughly three and a half years, exactly what we've talked about. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th days. So now, that, again, is roughly three and a half years. You say, well, what's that 45-day gap about? I don't know, all right? I, read, I studied lots of scholars. They're all like, this is a mystery. We don't know what this 45-day gap is about. The point is there's gonna be about three and a half years before all hell breaks loose, and those who are in Christ should endure to the end. Verse 13, but go your way, Daniel, to the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. In other words, Daniel, go and live your life. Go and live your life, man. Your place in the kingdom of God is secure. So Daniel, go, go live for me. Be aware of all these things. Like we, we should have our eyes open as Christians. We should have our antennas up as we look at the global scene. But Daniel, don't be obsessed with the details, bro. Go and live your life. Follow me. Love me. Point others to me. Now, let, let me just give you in closing kind of four practical applications from these final two chapters that I hope um, will be encouraging and, and helpful to you. And then we're going to finish our time by taking the bread and taking the wine, celebrating uh, the, the body and the blood of Jesus on our behalf. So here, here's number one on the screens for you. God is in control. This is something we need to remember. It's important for us to remember when things are good in our life but listen, guys, when the heat gets turned up, especially as we're talking about end time stuff and great persecution and who knows, torture, imprisonment, everything else, even more so clinging to this truth that God is in control of time and history. And he is moving every single historical event to a preordained conclusion where Jesus is gonna come back, establish his kingdom, right all wrongs, wipe away every tear, and establish a forever kingdom of peace and hope and love forever and ever and ever. We must keep those things in mind as we walk through difficult times and suffering in this life. Now, how many of you are glad that your fate isn't in your hands? <laughs> I am so glad my fate is not in my hands. God, I'm just telling you guys, if I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it by now, all right? I'm so glad that my salvation is secure in the hands of the Father because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. So happy for that. I'm so happy that my fate is not in the hands of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, right? If you are in Christ, you need to know this morning that your future is firmly in the hand of the one who breathed the stars into existence. And no matter what you go through in life, you're gonna be all right. You're gonna be all right. I look at, I look at the words of, of Spurgeon on the screens for you. Spurgeon writes this. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God, the idea that God is in control of all, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. And isn't that true, friend? 
Because how hopeless would this life be if we thought that everything was just kind of a, a random thing that happens to us? That there's no purpose behind our pain. There's no purpose behind our suffering. But as Spurgeon, the great preacher, reminds us, no, 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 no. We look to the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in control of time and history, and that becomes a pillow that allows us to rest and sleep at night knowing that he is in control, and ultimately we're gonna be okay. Number two, I think that we draw from uh, chapters 11 and 12. Uh, for the Christian, suffering is temporary. Now this is important for us to know, isn't it? Suffering is temporary. It was really hard for Daniel to hear that this much suffering was on the horizon for the people of God, but his comfort in that day is our comfort in this day. Our suffering, Christian, is temporary. Even in the final days of the Antichrist, suffering will be cut short for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's people. That's you. If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, it's for you, right? He is the great rescuer. And maybe if you're here today, you're watching online today, and you're in a season of suffering, perhaps that's what you need to hear most today, that your suffering has an expiration date, Christian. That it's not gonna go on forever and ever and ever. And so the message of Daniel is hang tight, believer. Hang tight. Run hard after Jesus, even through the pain, even through the suffering, even through the tears, because he does work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans chapter eight. Our, our suffering is temporary. Number three, and this one is maybe my favorite one. Believer, the resurrection is real. The resurrection of the dead is real. Just as the angel told Daniel in this chapter, on that final, those final days, those who, who sleep in the dust will be called to life, either to eternal life with King Jesus or eternal separation from him in a place the Bible calls hell. Now that is, listen guys, that's serious. Churches don't talk about this anymore. You don't get a lot of fan clubs talking about this, preaching about this. This is a sobering truth. But for those of us who know Jesus, who are in Christ, who have placed our faith in him, listen guys, this is the best possible news in the world, the resurrection from the dead. That one day our busted up, broken bodies will be made new, bulletproof, incapable of sickness or death or pain or sorrow or cancer. And as I get older and I wake up and everything hurts more and more, I love this truth more and more every year. <laughs> I can't wait until I get the resurrected body. That's gonna be a good day. As we are resurrected to life in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus, with his people forever and ever and ever for billions and trillions of years. I look forward to that day. I hope you do too. Last truth here, I think this is beautiful. We're reminded the last chapter of Daniel 12, that we, as believers, we have a mission worth living for. I want, you to, I want you to hear me say this, whether you're young or old, you have a purpose. Your life is not meaningless. You are not here by accident. You were put where you were put, geographically, in the year that you were born, in this time in history, because God had a plan and a purpose for your life. Believer, we have a mission that's worth living for. I wanna take you back to the words of the angel to Daniel, that the people of God in the last days shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, he says, like the stars forever and ever, and shall turn many to righteousness in those last days. 
Ladies and gentlemen, while we draw breath on planet Earth, our single-minded mission is to reflect the light of Jesus to the world around us and turn many to life in him. That is our mission. That is our purpose. That is why you have blood coursing through your veins right now in this very moment. Even through the painful seasons of life, even through the suffering, even through the tears, our light should shine still. Why? Because the one in us never dims. I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a minute. I got two questions for you as the band comes. Two questions for you, then we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us in the Lord's Supper. Two questions. If you're here and you're a Christ follower, so you would have to raise your hand and say, yeah, Chris, I'm on team Jesus. I love him. I've given my life to him. Here's a question for you, believer. How are you shining the light of Jesus right now where you live, work, and play? Are you shining the light of Jesus where you live, work, and play? That is your purpose in life, believer. So in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, in your, in your dorm, on your college campus, on your high school campus, the parks that you hang out with, with other moms that have little kids, play dates, how are you shining the light of Jesus right now, right where you live, work, and play in life? Because that is your purpose. Now, for the person who's here in the room, maybe watching online, who's not a Christian, I want you to know, man, we're happy that you're hanging out with us, but here's the other thing. I need you to know that your only hope, going back to where we started, the hope that we all need, your only hope in an ultimate sense is to have your name written in that book that Daniel talked about. That is your only hope on that last day, is to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Because here's the thing, I can promise you this, on that last day, when you and I stand before the creator of this universe, nothing else in life will have mattered on that day. It's not gonna matter how you, if you dated the guy that you wanted to date or the hot girl that you wanted to date. It's not gonna matter if you had a great career and stashed away a lot of money or solved the world's problems. None of that will matter. On that last day, when you see your creator face to face, the only thing that is gonna matter is, is your name in that book? Now, I just wanna plead with you for a moment. If you're here, watching online perhaps, and you'd have to say, Chris, that's not me, man. <laughs> Like, I don't have this dynamic relationship with my creator through Jesus Christ like you're talking about. I don't know, maybe I grew up in church, maybe I know all the churchy answers, maybe I went to summer camp at church, I was part of a youth group, but whatever. None of that matters. The only question for you this morning is, is your name in that book right now? Now, if it's not, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus invites you to the table today. If your name is not in that book, your name can be in that book before you leave this place or before you log off online today. Because you need to know something. Jesus came into this world on a rescue mission for you. And he lived a perfect life for you. The one that you should have lived but couldn't because you're like me. You're broken, you're busted up, you're a sinner. He came and lived that perfect life for you, friend. And he died a sinner's death to pay for your sin and my sin and your rebellion against a perfect, holy God. 
It didn't stay dead in that grave. Three days later, just like he predicted, he walked out of that tomb in Jerusalem, and he now offers you the resurrected life now on planet Earth and in eternity. And so if that's you, if you would just have to be honest and be like, Chris, I have never surrendered my life to Jesus, I want you to know you can do that today. I'll be right up here. We'll have some other prayer partners up here right as soon as this service is over. If you're online, you have a chat host who's available to connect with you. We would love nothing more than to talk to you about starting that journey with Jesus today.